Most conflict, in fact, 69% of them, are never solved. When we study couples four years later, we find mostly they're talking about the same stuff in the same way. So that's kind of interesting. You know, if, you know, if it's not that changeable, then, you know, what do you do to make a difference? That's Dr. John Gottman. And this is the Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Thursday. I am thankful for you joining me today as we have arguably one of the best relationship therapists back on the show to unpack how to resolve conflicts correctly and to share one simple tip to dissolve anger and frustration during times of of disagreement. And I love, love, love that tip toward the end of the talk. And I know by doing it, it'll save a lot of future regrets. So let's jump right into this one with Dr. John Gottman. Enjoy. Now, we learned some surprising things about conflict as well. Let me tell you what we learned. First of all, we found that most conflicts in a marriage, in fact, 69% of them, are never solved. When we study couples four years later, we find mostly they're talking about the same stuff in the same way. So that's kind of interesting. You know, if, you know, if it's not that changeable, then, you know, what do you do to make a difference in relationships? Well, by building these parts of the relationship, you know, the fondness and admiration and turning toward and love maps, you're actually working on that relationship itself, on the way conflict is dealt with in that relationship. But 69% of the time, we found that the same conflicts are perpetuated. And we wound up realizing that when you pick somebody to marry, you have automatically inherited your set of unresolvable relationship problems that you'll have for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Like in my marriage, for example, you know, my wife has to have the house incredibly neat, you know, and it has to look like a museum, whereas I am charmingly sloppy, right? It's not going to change until she gets therapy. <laughs> and she feels the same way about me. She says I'm organizationally impaired. You know? So we have this perpetual issue. Well, most conflicts are perpetual issues. Now, by the way, if you married somebody else, you wouldn't have those conflicts. You'd have a different set. But every relationship has these perpetual problems due to these personality differences. And the fact that we are much more forgiving toward ourselves than we are toward others. So we found two kinds of couples around these perpetual problems. One kind really had kind of a dialogue with perpetual problems. You know, it's not that the perpetual problems went away. It's that they had a relationship with the problems. They talked about them and they figured out ways to cope. And to some extent, you could really say that marriages last to the extent that you've selected somebody who 
whose irritating qualities you can stand and where the perpetual problems are ones you can deal with. Whereas if they're perpetual problems that really make you nuts, then that relationship is not going to work out very well. And in fact, in the couples that really wound up getting divorced, their perpetual problems resulted in gridlock. This is my visual image of gridlock, two fists in opposition, right? No compromise. Every time they talk about the issue, there's the four horsemen, or they get emotionally disengaged. They hurt each other's feelings. They feel basically not accepted by their partner. That's gridlock marital conflict. It's like a highway where all the cars are bumper to bumper. It never goes anywhere. It never moves anywhere. It's just frustrating. It's just steamy. It's awful. And so the major problem in making relationships work around conflict is not resolving the conflict because most conflicts don't get resolved. It's moving a couple from gridlock to dialogue to where they're coping with the problem. Now, what's the secret of that? That's a really interesting question, right? How do you move somebody from gridlock to dialogue? And what a lot of people will say, if you went to the library and, you know, read about marital therapy or relationships between couples, you know, they would say, well, the reason these people aren't compromising about this perpetual problem, they're not getting anywhere with it. You know, they're, they're in opposition, they're entrenched in their position, they're polarized in their positions, is because they have personality defects. He's a narcissist. She is borderline. She's hysterical. He's self-centered and unempathetic. You know, and all these ways of describing inadequate personalities. But what we say is the opposite. We say, if you look at the subtext of what they're arguing about, in other words, look underneath what they're fighting about. Maybe they're arguing ostensibly about money. They really disagree about spending and saving and they're their philosophies about money are really very different. But you actually look at what they're, what they're talking about underneath that, and you find that they're actually arguing about very different things than money. They're arguing about basic philosophical concepts that are very close to their sense of self. They're talking about freedom. They're talking about power. They're talking about caring and love. They're talking about what a home is, what it means to be a family. And so what does that mean? It means that Within these fists, if you could make the relationship safe enough and open these fists, there would be a dream, a life dream within each position that would fly out like a dove. And the reason they're not compromising is really understandable. So instead of us saying to people, the reason you're not compromising is that you're arrested at an earlier stage of development, you're immature, you have a personality defect, we say, no wonder you couldn't compromise. You could no more compromise on this issue than you could respond to somebody who came up to you and said, excuse me, can I borrow your bones? Can't give people your bones, right, or you die. And in the same way, you can't give up the bones of who you are. So we tell people the reason you're gridlocked is because you haven't looked at the dream within the conflict, the life dream. And what you need to do is become a dream catcher and release those dreams, make the relationship safe enough, ask questions, find out what the dreams are within each person's position, and what the history of those dreams are, what the life story is, the narrative behind each dream, and then find a way to honor both dreams. And once both dreams are honored, then the, the greatest sources of conflict and alienation in a relationship become the greatest sources of intimacy. Because what are you doing? You're building love maps at a deeper level, right? 
You're finding out something about meaning and purpose in people's lives. Now, for problems that could be solved, what we found was that 31% of the problems that could be solved, we found actually that the masters were doing something really interesting. And to summarize what they were doing in one word, it was really gentleness. They were presenting issues in a very gentle way. And they were doing what we call softened startup. Instead of presenting it in a harsh way, they were presenting their issue in a very gentle way. I, and I learned a lot from this in my relationship. And I found that, you know, a lot of times I would get really upset with my wife, Julie, and I'd say to her, Julie, you are so emotionally unavailable to me. What is wrong with you? And I found when I said that, she did not want to spend more time with me. <laughs> I don't know why. I was expressing my feelings very clearly. But then I, I watched the masters do it. And, you know, so one day I said to her, you know, honey, I'm getting that old feeling again of being lonely. I really miss you. I just need more of you in my day. Not only that, but they expressed appreciation. So I said, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we cuddled on the couch, that was really so nice. How can we do that again? And she said, how about now? So it was the same complaint, right? But I softened the startup. In fact, rather than criticizing her, I was still expressing what I needed, which was more of her. I was really flattering her. I was really telling her how much I missed her, how much I needed her, how much I admired her, how important she was to me, and saying it very directly, which was what the masters were doing. The other thing we found is not only are the masters starting with general startup, but they're really accepting influence from one another. And in particular, guys are accepting influence from women. Now, that was, that was a very interesting thing, and it emerged from studying violent relationships, a study I did with Neil Jacobson. And uh, what we found was that these physically violent guys never said anything to their wives like, good point. I never thought of that. Everything they said was, no, you're not going to control and influence me. They rejected everything. They were like baseball players at batting practice. You know, whatever got tossed to them, they hit back. So we're very interested in that rejection of influence. And we went and looked at our newlyweds who were not violent to try to see what predicted whether they'd stay together or get divorced. And we looked at women accepting influence from men, men accepting influence from women. And it didn't predict with women, but for guys who came up to close to where the women were, because the women were accepting influence in all relationships at a pretty high level, the guys who were accepting influence, their relationships stayed together. And we're living through a period in history where women are being emancipated on an international scale in most nations, and they're being empowered economically, psychologically, politically. And after millennia of oppression, and the guys who realize that this is a time to really honor women, and it makes a difference to honor your wife's dreams, it makes a difference to, to convey that honor. Just for example, like putting down the toilet seat after you go to the bathroom. You know, now it takes as much work for a woman to put it down as for a man to put it down. Putting it down, it really conveys that you're thoughtful and that you're honoring your partner. It's a small thing, but the men who accept influence from their partner would say, well, it's a good point. I never thought of that. Tell me more about your opinion. You know, let me consider that. Let me find out why you see things the way you see things. Those guys are way ahead of the game. Okay. Now, not only did the masters have gentle startup and did the guys accept influence, but also they moved toward compromise. 
and they were able to compromise. And one of the things they did was very interesting. And because we collected data on heart rate and blood flow velocity, on physiology while people were interacting, we found that calming down was a very, very important part of this whole equation. When your heart rate gets above 100 beats a minute, your body starts secreting adrenaline and your arteries start constricting and blood flow shuts down to the gut and the kidney and you start sweating more, blood pressure increases, the kidney starts producing a substance called renin, which leads to angiotensin, which also increases blood volume and blood pressure. All this stuff is going on. Well, it has adaptive value when you're trying to escape from a predator, you know, or there's a car coming in your lane and you have to get out of the way, right? That's adaptive. But when you're in the middle of a marital discussion, this kind of physiological arousal is very maladaptive because you cannot process information very well. You can't be very creative. You know, you're not a very good problem solver when your heart rate gets above 100 beats a minute. So what really has to happen is people have to calm down and take breaks and really calm themselves and self-soothe. So in one study we did, we actually did this trick with people. We waited for their heart rate to get above 100 beats a minute, and we went out and said to the couple, we're having some trouble with our equipment. Would you stop talking about this problem until we repair it? And we gave them magazines to read, right? Now, it wasn't true. We actually, the equipment was working. We waited actually for their heart rate to go down, 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 down. And when it went back to baseline, we came in and said, okay, the equipment's working now. You can talk about the issue again. Why did we do that? We wanted to see if it would be different, if their discussion of the problem would be different when their heart rates were low than when they were high. I can tell you, for, for the most part, it was like a different relationship. When the heart rate was low, all of a sudden people had a sense of humor, you know, they listened well, they were more creative problem solvers. So we learned from this that, you know, reducing flooding and physiologically reducing your, your arousal is a very important part. And one of the most important things you can do to really make that happen is to take a break, call a timeout. And what we found in studying violent couples was that they never did that. Whenever they had a violent fight, there was one person who wanted to get away from the other and have a timeout. And the other one would say, no way. Uh, you're not abandoning me. You're not having a timeout. And so the conflict would escalate. So monitoring your physiological arousal is very important. Now, this is nobody's fault, right? I mean, when your heart rate gets up, you get defensive, you know, you're really in a state of fight or flight, and there's no way you can be a good problem solver and you can listen well. Big thanks to Dr. John Gottman for stopping by. I got this clip from YouTube. It is entitled Making Marriage Work, Dr. John Gottman. If you'd like to connect with him, you can go to his website, Gottman.com. His Instagram is Gottman Institute, and his latest book is entitled The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. And it's a trip because I often go to Barnes & Noble with my daughter, and we happen to sit by this, I guess, this kind of makeshift stage. And we typically get a couple of books and we read them. And then she has some time to read her books and I have some time to kind of peruse through mine, pretty much just a table of contents at that point. But it just so happens when I sat down with her, that particular book, the book that I just um, mentioned by Dr. John Gottman was sitting right there on the stage. So I did check it out. The table of contents looked pretty good. So you may want to pick that one up. And uh, lastly, 
If you'd like to check out the last time we had him on the show, you can go back and check out episode number 197. And as always, I have all the links to connect with him, his work, and everything I just mentioned. They will all be in the show description below. And that is a wrap for me. I appreciate you. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. And I will see you back here tomorrow. So until then, stay strong. Later.